This is The Guardian. Welcome to Politics Weekly Extra. I'm Jonathan Friedland. The midterm elections, those battles for seats in the House and Senate and various governorships across the country, are less than a year away. The conventional wisdom says Democrats are going to lose and maybe even lose big. That would be a huge blow for Joe Biden and possibly set the stage for the return in 2024 of Donald Trump. And one state that counts in particular is Georgia. Last time it was a key swing state. It helped give Joe Biden the presidency by voting Democratic for the first time since 1992. And it helped give Democrats control of the Senate, all coming down to two Senate seats for Georgia, which themselves went to runoff elections resolved in January of this year. Those big gains in 2020 were soothing balm for a Democratic Party in Georgia that was still feeling the sting of having lost the governor's race in 2018, a race they very much felt they should have won and felt they would have won had it not been for Republican efforts to suppress the vote. But that defeat led to something big. It inspired the Democratic candidate in 2018, Stacey Abrams, to spend the next year campaigning against voter suppression and working tirelessly to register and enfranchise more of those key voters, especially voters of colour. And her effort was seen as crucial in getting Joe Biden to the White House. Well, last week, Stacey Abrams announced that she would be running for governor again, setting up the possibility of a rematch against her 2018 opponent, Brian Kemp. But Brian Kemp now has a problem. Back in 2018, he was the personal favourite of Donald Trump, but he has very much fallen off the former president's Christmas card list. All of which means that all eyes are on Georgia, a state to watch in the coming year. So to discuss all this, I turn to Oliver Lockland, The Guardian's US Southern Bureau Chief. And I started off by asking him to what extent he was surprised when he heard that Stacey Abrams is running again. I would say it's not a huge surprise, to be totally honest with you. Uh, Stacey has always been incredibly candid about her political ambitions um, and has told me repeatedly that she is seeking office in the executive branch of government now, wants to run not as a senator, not as a state legislator anymore, but at the top of the ticket um, in Georgia. And that means running for the governor. One of the really striking things I think about Stacey is not only how candid she is about her own political ambitions, but also about, you know, uh, how organized she is. So she used to tell me a little bit about um, these spreadsheets that she would keep about uh, ambitions in her life, her personal life and her political life. And becoming the next governor of Georgia was on that spreadsheet too. And she didn't take it off after um, she didn't become it in 2018. So as much as it was, you know, um, a big news story here, I don't think it was hugely surprising. And just dr drill down a bit into this uh, notion that it's executive office she wants rather than in the legislative branch. She doesn't want to go to Washington, D.C. to represent Georgia in the Senate. What, what's behind that desire for Stacey Abrams to have her hands on executive power? 
I think it's really because she spent 10 years in the legislature. And, you know, as I mentioned, she's incredibly motivated and incredibly clear eyed about her own progression in politics. And I think she is essentially done with that branch of government, whether it be in Washington, whether it be in Georgia, um, and really has her own ambitions, not just for becoming the governor, but also eventually one day to run as president. And I think that's partly what's underlining this. Well, talking of executive office, she was even discussed for the very top executive office in the country, namely the presidency of the United States. There was much speculation about her perhaps being a candidate for the Democratic nomination in 2020. She didn't in the end go for that. But even the fact that it was talked about was so remarkable, really, for someone whose biggest claim to fame was that she had nearly won the governor's office in Georgia, but hadn't held a statewide office. That ambition, obviously, you're telling us, remains uh, somewhere there for Stacey Abrams. But her own name has remained front and centre throughout, partly because of what she chose to do after it became clear in 2018 that she was not going to make it to the governor's mansion that time. Just tell us a bit about what she has been doing that has absolutely kept her as a prominent figure in the national spotlight. It's certainly known about in Georgia. You know about it because you follow her so closely, but perhaps not known to people outside the country. What has Stacey Abrams been up to? Stacey's mission after losing out on that election was really to try and galvanise the base that she had built. And so for me, the decision not to run for president was one of saying, where could I do my best work? And that's making certain that we set up voter protection teams across the country. It was a really extraordinary election to cover. She mobilised a vast swathes of the states that had not really been engaged in the political process for many years. Um, uh, residents in kind of low income minority communities who so she got out to come and vote for her. Um, and I think that she wanted to really keep that momentum going when it came to the presidentials and also to really push back against some of the rampant, as she describes, voter suppression happening in the state. We have seen it through voter ID laws. You can't get on the rolls. And if you get on the rolls, you can't stay. You may not be able to cast your ballot because they close your precinct or they change the rules. That's rigging the game. She describes what's happened in Georgia as being the kind of uh, ground zero for voter suppression in America. So, you know, at the time she was running, she was running when Brian Kemp, who was her opposer at that point, was still the Secretary of State. So he had been um, overseeing the election at the same time as running for governor. And he purged uh, thousands of voters from the rolls there um, and closed hundreds of polling stations across Georgia as well. So she founded this group called Fair Fight Action. And so her sort of entire modus operandi following that election was to try and make sure that Georgia remained competitive, not just Georgia, other states in the Sun Belt, but really it was focused on Georgia. And people talk about her almost as if she has this kind of magic gift for organising uh, that somehow she's able to do in Georgia what people have, and particularly Democrats, have not quite been able to do in other states. What's the kind of secret ingredient? Does she have, What's her sort of magic power? <laughs> it's quite a difficult thing to pinpoint. There are... There are lots of things about her that I think are um, pretty unique. I mean, obviously, she was running in a historic race. If she was elected, she would have become the first uh, black female governor um, in America's history and still will be if she wins um, next year. 
Um, but I think, you know, underpinning so much of that is is a real charisma, an ability to see and hear people where they're coming from in the political process. Um, you know, she's dealt with a lot of setbacks. She's not from a kind of, you know, traditional democratic political class in Georgia. And so I think that really speaks to voters. She's also, despite the characterizations that many Republicans in the state have given her, not a radical, you know, she has not come out in favour of the Green New Deal, for example, hasn't come out and uh, favoured single payer healthcare in America either. Obviously, she wants to expand Medicaid and uh, uh, bring the Affordable Care Act to Georgia. But I think there are lots of things about her that that position her incredibly well in Georgia. I mean, you couldn't really have, I I guess, those sorts of policy positions in Georgia, historically, uh, moderate state among Democrats, and obviously been in Republican hands, for so long. We've talked about the big focus with her is this drive to enlist, enfranchise, register voters and make sure that they get to vote and have the chance to vote. That was a big deal already in 2018, as we've been uh, been saying. It's got a whole lot harder since. I mean, t- tell us about that and, and very specifically how it's got harder in Georgia and I suppose really across many states in the South and beyond. So I think to kind of understand where Georgia is at the moment, you need to think about not only what happened in 2018, where Stacey Abrams came incredibly close to winning. And I think that really rocked the Republican establishment in that state. She was within 55,000 votes, which is an incredibly close margin. Then obviously in 2020, Georgia flipped. It went to Joe Biden and they won both Senate seats. The Democrats won both Senate seats in a closely fought runoff election. NBC News now projects that Democrat Raphael Warnock has won the Senate runoff election, defeating incumbent Republican Kelly Left called the second of two Georgia Senate races for the Democrat John Ossoff. Really, Georgia kind of became the emblem for the Trump administration at the time of suggesting that this was a stolen election, you know, pushing baseless conspiracy theories about fraudulent voting. There's no way we lost Georgia. There's no way. The rigged, that was a rigged election. Donald Trump personally called the Secretary of State in Georgia and urged him to find the 11,000 votes that he had lost by. I just want to find uh, 11,000 780 votes, which is one more than we have. Which to many people was a pretty uh, clear indication that he was essentially trying to uh, force the result in his favour. And so that kind of pressure that existed after the 2020 election has led to um, a swathe of pushback from the Republican-controlled legislature. And that is embodied in a piece of legislation that was just passed um, earlier this year, SB 202. Governor Brian Kemp is defending Georgia's controversial new voting law, the one that passed the legislature and he signed all on the very same day. Which builds on a lot of those uh, previous iterations of voter suppression that I mentioned. So Georgia now has much harsher voter ID laws. There are major pushbacks against absentee ballots. Early voting as well has been pushed back on polling locations as well. So as I mentioned, there were hundreds of polling locations that were closed in Georgia um, under Brian Kemp's tenure. Now, if you turn up to the wrong location, you can't cast your ballot there unless you turn up past 5pm. The one that really stands out to me is the fact that it's now uh, a misdemeanor offence to give uh, voters waiting in line food or water, which obviously in a lot of these places where there are long queues for votes in, uh, you know, urban areas, there are kind of um, organisers who go out there and give water and food to make sure people don't leave the line. And that's now essentially illegal. 
it was it was tough in 2018, but we're really in a kind of new a new ballpark now in Georgia in 2022. And that is just extraordinary, isn't it? The idea that it's against the law to you know to help out somebody who's lining up, queuing up to vote. I mean, it just does suggest uh, the thrust of these uh, changes are to make it much harder to vote, to put people off voting. Given all that, do pe- how do people rate her chances? Given that it was pretty, you know, it was tough then, even tougher now. I mean, I think the kind of view for most people is if anybody can do it, it's going to be Stacey Abrams. She obviously has a huge national profile now um, off the back of the 2018 election, off the back of really what she did for the 2020 election, not just in Georgia, but in other states across the South. And so I think her method of organising really sort of coalition based grassroots organising has proven effective in the state of Georgia. I think we're kind of in uncharted territory now with regards to how this new law is going to unfold and, and work next year in the election. So we're really just going to have to kind of wait and see, I think. Yeah, and we're, we're taking as read in this conversation that she will be the Democratic nominee. I mean, you, you and I have got into her chances up against uh, the Republicans, but there's no doubt that now that she said she wants to be the nominee, to be the Democrats' candidate for the governor's mansion, it's going to be hers, isn't it? The nomination, at least. Uh, I'll put it this way. I will uh, eat my hat if anybody else uh, beats her in a primary, to be totally honest. Yeah, no, I don't think you'll have to get your salt and pepper and knife and fork out for your headgear anytime soon. I think people do think that's uh, the likely outcome. So listen, we've talked about that. That's the sort of contest on the Democratic side, probably no contest. It is very likely to be her. Let's look at the other side of the of the battle to come. And, and we've talked about it a bit that um, Brian Kemp is the incumbent. He was, in British terms, the returning officer, you know, in charge of overseeing the election in uh, 2018 uh, that handily went his way. Before he was seen as something of a, of a favourite of Donald Trump's and has fallen out of his good books, um, partly for the reason you said, which is he was I mean, crudely, not willing to sort of cook the results for uh, Donald Trump in the 2020 election. Is there more to it than that? Or is that is that really the grudge between these two? And how important will it be? It's 100% the grudge. I mean, I remember covering the 2018 gubernatorial and Kemp essentially modelled himself as a kind of uh, Trump mini in that campaign. You know, he ran a whole uh, series of ads that was sort of under the banner, I just said that. Sort of. You know, I've seen these ads. And honestly, if it didn't have the markers on it that prove it's authentic, you would think you were looking at a parody, a spoof out of Saturday Night Live. I got a big truck just in case I need to round up criminal illegals and take them home myself. Yeah, I just said that presenting himself as a sort of outspoken conservative who would say things like I'm going out in my truck to round up illegal aliens and uh, get them deported uh, would pose with shotguns and that sort of thing you know courted Trump's endorsement got it and absolutely used it to the maximum throughout that entire campaign so Trump came and uh, rallied with Kemp a few times I was I was there at one of them and just remember speaking to basically everybody at that rally who you know, expressed the fact they were going to vote for Kemp, but really the fact they were doing it was because uh, Trump was there and Trump was endorsing him. And I think really up until the point that Kemp and his Secretary of State, uh, Brad Raffensperger, didn't intervene in that election process, Trump was Trump was still behind him 100%. And so what you've really seen is this kind of line drawn after the 2020 election over those who backed Trump's lies about the election's integrity and those who didn't. 
And Kemp is essentially paying the political price for that. I mean, paying the political price for having um, a degree of integrity, I guess, which is pretty extraordinary. We've talked uh, often on this podcast about how important it is to have the backing of Donald Trump in any of these internal Republican contests. Uh, You've explained how Brian Kemp has very much fallen out of uh, Donald Trump's good graces, so he doesn't have that. Uh, Instead, though, there is a rival for Brian Kemp, uh, somebody who wants the nomination uh, instead uh, for the governorship of Georgia, and that comes in the form of former United States Senator David Perdue, who's announced he was running and very rapidly won the endorsement of Donald Trump. Presumably, Ollie, that makes all the difference. So you're right. Yeah. So uh, Perdue came out um, early this week and announced that he was running. And very quickly, within 24 hours, Trump came out and gave him his endorsement, which is obviously a huge coup for uh, the Perdue campaign. Um, It's obviously going to carry a hell of a lot of weight going forward. If you go and look at um, Perdue's announcement video, He's very much sort of singing the tune that Brian Kemp and Brad Raffensperger, you know, took the election away from Trump. Look, I like Brian. This isn't personal. It's simple. He has failed all of us and cannot win in November. They backed Biden and have handed him the White House, which, to be frank, is actually a bit of an about turn. I remember when he was running uh, in that Senate runoff, I went to another rally where he was present along with Kelly Loeffler, who was the uh, other uh, Senate candidate running. And neither of them went as far as to basically say the election had been stolen. And that announcement video, to me, was a tacit acknowledgement that he has basically had to make that concession now in order to win Trump's backing. You know, the the soundings from the the, uh, Kemp camp already are sort of suggesting that this run is kind of, uh, you know, an indication of uh, Purdue's bruised ego. They've been very clear in briefings to the local media that this is going to be a scorched earth primary, that they're both going to be going at each other. So I don't think it's a done deal. I don't think it's absolutely certain that Purdue will wrest the nomination away from Kemp just because Trump has backed him. Really interesting to me as well, Steve Bannon came out this week and uh, laid into both of them. Um, so both Kemp and Purdue said they were kind of blazer-wearing country club Republicans, part of the globalist movement, and he wanted one of his kind of more populist Republican candidates to put themselves forward. But I think there is room in this race potentially for a third candidate. Um, and also, even if it is just between those two, realistically, it's not really clear to me which one of them will win. It's a really interesting race, this, because normally you would sort of nod, in, you'd, you'd tip the Republican to win. But it's always said that if there's a re- an internal primary battle on one side, but not the other, that leaves the one where there was a contest much weaker. And so the Republicans could, you know, knock each other's heads and take lumps out of each other, leaving Stacey Abrams more or less unchallenged on the other side in a much stronger position. Maybe this is for those reasons, just for those reasons alone and the Trump wars going on inside the Republican Party, maybe this landscape is not as hostile for her as otherwise you might have thought. I mean, I think that that's definitely true. I think the one thing I would say that both Purdue and Kemp are united on is going to be to cast Stacey as a radical. Make no mistake, Abrams will smile, lie and cheat to transform Georgia into her radical vision of a state that would look more like California or New York. He's basically become a kind of target for Republicans across the country from Trump downwards, really, as this kind of emblem of the quote unquote radical left. 
Yeah, well, so often the targets of Donald Trump and the mini Trumps, uh, as we've been hearing on the podcast, are women of colour. So this would fit that pattern. Uh, we were talking about the so-called squad just last week. So that's the big battle, the uh, uh, governor's race to come. That isn't, incredibly, the only big election coming in Georgia. We've talked about uh, how uh, Georgia was in the global headlines in the 2020 cycle, partly because it was a state that went against the trend of the previous three decades, did go for the Democrats, but also because there were these two runoff elections uh, for those seats uh, in the Senate, and it made all the difference about whether who would control the Senate. I, I think probably not many people were aware that one of the two winners there, Raphael Warnock, only actually won the right to serve out two years of his predecessor's term. It was a kind of special election, the American equivalent of a by-election in a way. Uh, and so now he has to run again. Just, I mean, it feels as if the last one is barely over. It was only decided this year. But he has to run again now to get a full term. And so there is, Ollie, a Senate election in Georgia too. There is, yes. So as you mentioned, Raphael Warnock, who is this civil rights leader from Atlanta, um, who, as you said, uh, won two years to finish off a, a previous Republican incumbent's term uh, is up for re-election again, which obviously makes Georgia even more interesting as a state in the midterms. Um, he's up against, well, we don't know exactly who's going to be up against yet because it's early days and who's declaring for uh, the, the Republican primary. But the front runner at the moment is a guy called Herschel Walker, who has already won the endorsement of Trump. You know, Herschel is not only a Georgia hero, he is an American legend. Herschel is a legend, born and raised in this state. He is Herschel. also um, a black man from Georgia um, and, and has endorsed Trump back in 2016, endorsed him back in 2020. They have a long history together. He's a former uh, college football star and pro football star who played for Trump's team back in New Jersey in the 1980s. And, you know, himself has a pretty controversial past. So his ex-wife has also accused him of domestic violence and secured a protective order against him back in 2005. But interestingly, recently, has also kind of tried to a little bit distance himself from Trump. So Trump has sort of come out recently and said that Republicans shouldn't vote in the 2022 or 2024 elections unless um, election integrity is sorted. And he was asked about this uh, recently and basically said he was his own man. He didn't agree with that. And that, um, you know, as much as he loved Trump, he'd be running his own campaign. Once he's got the Trump nomination, is this in the bag for him at least to be the Republican nominee? Or could he face, just as we were talking about in the governor's race, could he face an internal challenge uh, from a fellow Republican who says, well, yeah, you may have Trump's backing, but you have such a problematic past that actually somebody sees an opening here. Yeah, so there are other declared candidates in that race already. Probably the most high profile is Georgia's Agriculture Secretary, Gary Black, who has raised um, these um, allegations of domestic violence uh, from his past already. I have to be completely frank, I don't know a huge amount about Gary Black other than seeing him perform the national anthem at a, a Trump rally and confirming that he does have an excellent singing voice. Um, that's great because that's probably as much as Georgia's voters also know about him so far. And that's the problem he's going to face running against basically a, a celebrity in the form of Herschel Walker. So yet more reasons why those Georgia contests are going to be just a huge centre of attention. I mean, 2022 shaping up to be an extraordinarily fascinating year. Off years, midterm years are not always um, so intriguing, but this one really is. And partly because there is this question of how well can Democrats do in Georgia or anywhere else 
without the galvanizing and mobilizing force of Donald Trump in the White House. So much of what the energy of 2020 and 2018 was about was rallying against that real hate figure in Donald Trump. Does he still have the same sort of pulling power uh, if he's no longer uh, in office? That's going to be a big uh, question, but one we will definitely watch. I mean, before we leave this topic, Ollie, what's your gut telling you? That just for example, Georgia it was for so long a red state, it became a blue state across the board eventually in 2020, in that cycle. Do you think it flips back to red or does it, does it deliver a mixed verdict and stay very emphatically purple? What's your gut telling you? So that's a tough question to answer. I think that I would slightly duck the, fir- the, the the first part of it and say, I think that there's no doubt in my mind now that Georgia is no longer a red state. It's a swing state. And anybody who thinks otherwise, I think is 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 flatly wrong. What happened in 2020 and what happened in 2018 have really shown us that, that that's Georgia's status now. In terms of what happens next year, I mean, the big outlier to me is just what effect these new voter suppression laws in the state will have on turnout. High turnout generally means uh, good news for Democrats. And if these laws have what is very clearly the designed effect to suppress some of that vote, then I think it's going to be an incredibly close race, both for the Senate and for the gubernatorial as well. Ollie, we always ask our guests on the podcast a what else question. And this week, we are truly spoiled for choice. There is so much going on around the country. There's been the death announced uh, of the former senator and former Republican presidential nominee, Bob Dole, uh, who uh, I remember covering in New Hampshire. I can tell you my little story about me firing a question. I had barely got to the end of it when he heard my British accent and snarled back, no votes in Liverpool. (laughs) <laughs> meaning there's no point me even answering your question, which was fantastic. Chris Cuomo, formerly an anchor on CNN, let go from the channel because it was revealed that he had given direct help and advice, including uh, about handling the media and the political fallout, to his brother, the former and disgraced New York governor, Andrew Cuomo. Uh, and we've had that uh, that meeting, a sort of telephone summit between Joe Biden and Vladimir Putin. So tons going on. We are sport for choice with what else. But we thought we would focus on what else you have been covering this week, because I know you have been laser focused on something very, very different. Yes. So I am based for The Guardian in New Orleans. Um, I cover the whole South and we have been running a sustained project down here that's covering air pollution issues in a region called Cancer Alley, which is this heavily industrialized region between Baton Rouge and New Orleans. Um, and for the past two years, we've been sort of running a campaign to uh, fight for clean air or assist the fight for clean air in some of these communities. And last month, the EPA administrator came to visit, which is the first time an EPA administrator has ever come um, down to this region to, to speak to residents and hear their concerns. And it was a really um, striking moment for me. Joe Biden made reference to Cancer Alley many times during the uh, 2020 presidential election, saying that he was going to bring about reform for clean air in this region. And when EPA administrator Michael Regan turned up, um, a lot of the residents were thrilled that he was here. He didn't make any policy commitments, but did say that he was getting ready to do some enforcement action around here to change some policy. And so that's really what I'm kind of laser focused on at the moment to see what's going to happen with the EPA in this region, because it's so important. 
Oliver Lockland, thanks so much for joining me on Politics Weekly Extra. Thanks, Johnny. Pleasure to be here. And that is all from me for this week. Do make sure to listen back to Wednesday's edition of UK Politics Weekly as Rowena Mason gives the lowdown on the Downing Street Christmas party, which is proving a nightmare for Boris Johnson. But for now, it's goodbye. The producer is Daniel Stevens, and I'm Jonathan Friedland. Please stay safe out there and thanks, as always, for listening. This is The Guardian.